Welcome to Theology on Tap. We're going to go ahead and get started. Grab a seat, grab some pizza, grab a drink. Uh, we're excited that you're here. My name is Justin. Uh, this is Brian, and you're at Theology on Tap. We're excited for tonight. We have uh, a really awesome topic to discuss. If this is your first time, you'll see these little sheets of paper kind of scattered around the room. Uh, that top QR code, the way this evening works is we'll, we'll talk for 20 minutes or so, uh, and then we open it up to any questions whatsoever, whether it relates to anything we talk about or not. I, I imagine we'll probably get some good ones tonight about our topic, but it doesn't have to be about our topic. It can be about anything. Um, and then also you'll see the bottom left there. You can join our email list for all things theology on tap related. So we do this every other Tuesday right here at Henry's. And uh, really excited that we don't know if this is going to be the name for it, but we had a number of people fill out an interest form, about 20 folks, and a lot of people still didn't do it, but they were like, hey, we'd love more fellowship opportunities outside of just Theology on Tap. And so the way I thought it was going to work was like, hey, we'd have like a game night group or like a pickleball group or a frisbee golf group, something like that, and like everybody signed up for everything. So what we're going to do is basically just on the off weeks of Theology on Tap, we have Colton and Victoria. Victoria is here. I saw her. Where is she? There she is. Hey. Um, and so they are kind enough to kind of coordinate all of those fellowship opportunities. So uh, that's going to start actually next week. If you're interested in being in the group me for that group, you can scan this QR code down here at the bottom. Uh, you'll see the first one is going to be next week, August 3rd. Everybody's going to meet and play some pickleball. So if you're looking for ways to just build some more friendships, get involved in community. This is a great way to do it at Theology on Tap, but it's also another way to do lots of different things um, outside of this time. Join that uh, group me right there. So we're excited that you're here. Brian, what are we talking about tonight? We are talking about technology and how technology is changing you. Not that that sounds ominous. But not you or me. It's changing no, no, all of us. everybody else, <laughs> yes. Yes, and so we realized, I mean, in prepping for talking about technology, you realize, we can talk about the whole history of the world in some sense, because mm -hmm. ever since the very beginning, you have tools, you have technology that was created. Very, right there in Genesis, the creation of man was, okay, the first command was to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, tend the garden. And the presumption was that you would create technology to help you in that endeavor, to create, uh, so to speak, in God's image, to cultivate through uh, your own kind of ability that God's given you. But to limit, I think, our focus, we're going to try and talk about some of that more everyday technology that most all of us take for granted, right? So uh, the air conditioning, for instance, is a technology, but especially like the smartphone is probably the easiest way that we could look at um, you know, a really simple piece of technology that we all take for granted, but it's having a profound impact, not just on uh, what we think, but how we think, how we relate to the world, and it's all subconscious. So that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. As usual, we've brought a lot of books that relate to a lot of different parts of this topic. Feel free to come up afterwards, take a peek. Um, but where should we begin tonight as we talk about how some of this everyday technology is affecting just because of the air we breathe and uh, what we do. Yeah, so I think one of the things about technology is that 
it is something that has exploded in recent years and the pace of it has exploded. And if you were uh, as old as I am, you would be really amazed at how really quickly things have changed. And it reminds me, there's a great essay that some of y'all might have studied in school uh, that's called This is Water it's by David Foster Wallace. I don't know yeah. if that rings a bell with anyone. It's but a graduation speech. Yes. Yeah. But there's an illustration in it where he's talking about these fish. And the fish are swimming around and different things are going on. And they're just living their life. And they have no idea that they're in water. They don't know that they're in water. They just think this is the way everything is. And then somebody explains to them that they're in water. And it like makes their head explode. And for most of y'all, you have been in technology like all of your life, and it's always been there. But when I was your age, uh, particularly uh, in those days before I was married, and I wanted to ask a girl out, I had to go to the phone on the wall and dial the girl's number that I looked up in the paper phone book and then ask her mom who answered the phone if I could speak with her and then ask her and hope that she would say yes. That is so different from the way things are now. And part of what happens is when you're swimming in water, like those fish that we mentioned, you don't realize maybe the way that the water is impacting you. And so I think the fact that we have this technology, which there's some really good things about, well, what we want to try to do is unpack a little bit about how it is affecting us, how it's changing us, uh, what parts of that maybe are good, what parts of that are things that we need to be careful of, and what might be some life-giving practices. And sort of the backdrop of that uh, involves answering one of those big metaphysical questions. What are we here for? What are men and women um, in the Christian view created in the image of God? What are we here for? What is the purpose of our life? And then as we begin to get a hold of that, then we can ask the question, what is the purpose of this technology and how can we use it in such a way that it's life-giving? So we realized we actually have about 24 hours worth of material. So we brought a little stand, and we're just going to stand out on the street and pontificate all night long. Um, so y'all get just a little bit of that tonight. Yeah, it was crazy just how much of this relates to so many of the other topics we've talked about before. I mean, um, I think I just came. Okay, I just came on there. Wow, that was wild. Uh, technology. Technology. It's yeah. It was. It, it, it's kind of everywhere in every subject just because it's, as you said, part of the, um, the water that we're swimming in, right? And I think that's so important to recognize first before we can even talk about technology to actually talk about, you know, teleology. What are we here for? What's the purpose of life? What's our end goal? And if you don't answer that, uh, you know, technology and really the programmers of whatever kind of like smartphones are going to be more than happy to answer that for you. And that, and that brings us, I think, really quickly. Or to stop you from asking that question. Or to stop ever. you, totally. Yeah. So I think to start with, technology is not good, it's not bad, but it's not neutral either, right? It's actually doing, it's reinforcing 
some vision of whatever the good life is for us. And so whether that's subconscious or not, um, it is kind of important. You need to bring it to the forefront. What do you understand your purpose in life? What does human flourishing look like? That's going to be a phrase I'm sure we use a lot. Today. Yes, yes. And I think one of the aspects of that that uh, is related to technology is to understand how the advent of technology, and particularly in recent years as it's uh, accelerated so quickly, to understand how it has profoundly changed the way we think about things in ways that we don't even realize. And naturally, one of the first places I go when I'm thinking about this is C.S. Lewis. And there's a great lecture that Lewis gave in Cambridge in 1954 that's called De Descriptione Temporum, uh, which is basically describing the times that we're living in. And what he talks about in that essay is how the introduction of machines and technology fundamentally changed the vision of what it means to be human. And it changed the way that we think about things. And he said, it's changed the way that we think about things in a way that is dangerous if we're not careful about it. Because what he said is that when you are living in an age of technology and an age of machines, that uh, newer is almost always better. So I brought with me my old iPhone. Uh, my old iPhone that has the, the big hole in the bottom that has the button that you push. Yeah. And it had the big clunky charger um, that was really wide, that went in this huge slot in the bottom. Um, and so if you look at this, you would think no one would want this. This is what? out of date, it's outmoded. Um, there are new phones that are so much better. And the same thing is true with cars, air conditioners, computers, refrigerators, microwaves, everything. The newer it is on all of those things, generally the better, the more efficient, the more useful it is. And what Lewis says in that essay is that we have taken that understanding of newer is better that should only be applied to machines and technology and applied it to the whole world of human experience. That anything that's old is automatically out of date, not valuable, and the things that are new, that are bold, that are innovative, that those are the things that we want to lean into. And he says, by doing that, you can take the entire accumulated wisdom of the human race over millennia and throw it out. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's one way it's changed us. Absolutely. Right. And I love what you said earlier. Like technology, it's so ch it's changing so rapidly. Uh, just in the last ten years or so. Uh, you know, it's, it's laughable almost to look back at the, what we were talking about in technology, right? Like, I mean, I was reading this book, I have to, I mean, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You by Tony Rinke. It was written in 2017. Even that, I mean, he's talking about Facebook, which like most of y'all are probably not even on Facebook, I guess. But what changed just from 2017 to 2023 is phenomenal. But, um, you know, that's one of the things you're seeing in the last 20, ever since the rise of when, when the internet, I guess. 
you're seeing such rapid change. And part of that is embedded in it is whatever is new is going to therefore be more efficient and better. And that's usually what we look for in technology is to make things easier, more efficient. But the problem is uh, you're overlooking other costs, we'll say, to yes. what technology, uh, the side effects essentially, right? And so you have to take a holistic view as to what all is being affected with this technology. And I think that's one of the things that we can see is we have to, as you said, disabuse ourselves of this notion of progress. I think that's one of the first things we want to say with how it, it's, it can be so easy to buy into because of just the age of all the different um, machines coming out, technologies coming out so quickly, we can be tempted to think that we're just naturally progressing. Uh, I think we, by and large, think about that in general. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we have to recognize is we're overlooking some of the costs, some of the effects that has on the human body, human society, that may not actually be for the good, right? Yes. And so you're overlooking some effects in order to say, well, look, here we're progressing because we can make things more efficient. Yes, and one of the things I always think about when I, we're talking about this issue is when I was a kid, um, my dad was an executive and his office was on Broad Street and it was a big building that was where the courthouse is now and it went around the corner and the back part of the office was where Miller's all day, the restaurant is now. And that building, the only thing in it when I was five years old was my dad's company's computer. And in order for that computer to do anything, the people in the computer programming department had to tell the computer what to do. And I remember one Saturday when I was about five years old, I went down there with my dad and he had gotten the computer programming people to tell the computer to do a printout on the green and white striped paper that said, hi, Brian, on it. And that was the result of a computer that took up that entire first floor where Miller's All Day is. There is now more power in even this old iPhone than there was in the computer of that whole room. But the major thing that changed, and y'all don't probably even think about this because it's happened before you started using these things, was the advent of what's called the personal computer and personal computing and the idea that you interact with the computer without having to be a computer programmer, without having to learn COBOL or any of those other languages and that you interact with that computer and the product that the people are making is designed to, the commodity that they want to get is your attention. And your attention is what they are after and they have whole groups of people working to try to figure out how to capture that. Totally, we, I think we've mentioned before the social dilemma, that Netflix documentary, anybody heard of that? Yeah, a lot of people have. If yeah. you have not watched that, please watch that. It's it's amazing because right at the advent of all this technological uh, innovation, you're seeing behind the scenes all the people creating it, all the people at the top going, yeah, we're doing this, it's amazing. Okay, but what about your children? And oh, no, no, we have very strict rules whether they even look at screens or how much time they spend on it, which right there, uh, we can debate about a lot of this, but that should send red flags when the very people creating it are you know, very concerned about their own families. Um, so I think in 
talking with a lot of folks, I, I, my, my hunch would be almost all of you would be willing to admit that there's a love-hate relationship that you have with your phone. You can recognize, like, yeah, I can FaceTime my mom who lives 10 hours away, and that's, that's a good thing. We, we, we do have a, the ability now to relate in ways that, you know, gosh, it was not that long ago. If you think about the creation of like the steam engine and stuff, I mean, just a couple hundred years ago, if you were born somewhere in, say, the middle of Europe, the chances of you living there, marrying somebody within 10 miles of where you live and staying there were almost 100%, right? Now, with just some very simple uh, technological advances, we can go all around the world, we can go in outer space, we can commute and relate in good ways, positive ways, mm -hmm. with people. But all of us know we, we have things with technology that we don't like in our own lives. Um, can you speak into that a little bit? What would you say to those who are like, I know I don't want to be on my phone as much, I know I don't have the proper kind of relationship I want with technology, what would you say? Yeah, so I think many of us feel that way, and there are some really alarming statistics out there about the amount of hours that people spend on their phone or in front of a screen um, not required for work. I think for most people in the 20 to 30 age range, it's seven to eight hours a day. And just think about generations before where there was no phone, seven to eight hours a day what were people doing with those seven to eight hours? And what has been lost by the fact that we're scrolling through all of whatever Instagram has decided that we need to see? So I think that there, part of it is acknowledging, okay, I'm spending too much time. Um, there's a feature, um, and this is sort of ironic to me, but there's a feature on your phone that will tell you how much time you're spending on it. Uh, so you can, that's a good feature to enable uh, because it may surprise you. Uh, but one of the best things I think you can do if you feel like you're sort of trapped uh, is to acknowledge it and don't feel guilty about that because there are teams of people that are paid six-figure salaries to try to make you be addicted to your phone. The neuroscience says that you will eventually start getting the same hit of dopamine from using your phone that people get from cocaine or other drugs. And so there's a withdrawal process. And you can't just say, I'm going to stop. Yeah. What you have to do is figure out some limits and then what you're going to replace it with. And the ideal thing is to replace phone use with some sort of interpersonal, something that is um, embodied, connected to another person. Uh, or to God's creation or to worship or something like that that will help you um, get technology back in uh, being a tool that you use rather than something that manipulates or even enslaves you. Yeah, that's, that's good. I think the first thing is just kind of like that analogy you said before is recognizing that you're in water and the water you're in is that people are trying to buy your attention. And I think that right there gives you some hopefully some patience with yourself as you recognize, man, I, yeah, part of the reason why I have this really unhealthy relationship maybe with technology is because it's by design. Like that's what they're trying to buy is my gaze, right? And you think about how that affects, I mean, this is, my wife said this the other day, it was like the image of God is what human beings are made in, right? I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things, one of the most prized things in all of creation are people. And 
these programmers are trying to literally buy our gaze, the, the gaze of the image of God. And so instead of looking at you or my children or my wife looking down at a screen, right? Yeah. And so recognizing that all of that, that there is in, in many ways like um, a battle that's being fought for, for that. Um, I think too recognizing, yeah, we talked a little bit about what, what these things actually do to us without knowing it. So all content aside, like aside from looking at the more, um, you know, not talking about what shows you watch on Netflix or what sort of content or material you're viewing, just the very actions that we do with these things teach our hearts really, really crazy truth, or not truths, but uh, messages that yes. they're programming our hearts to believe certain things. Let me show, uh, this is, I steal this illustration from uh, this guy, James K. Smith, but he was saying, you know, just the very fact, you know, the number of times that we touch these things a day, it's like in the thousands. I mean, it's unreal. That includes texting and all that, but um, the cell phone, the smartphone, right? You are able to um, immediately find anything you want with just searching Google or Hey Siri. That's amazing. I mean, the ability for other generations to have to look up something, you had to actually have research skills and search into it. So first of all, the immediacy that we expect just at basic level today is so much more immediate because of smartphones. Um, but also it makes us believe that we're the center of the world. Because if, if you know, let's take, um, if I don't like something, I just swipe. As simple as this motion is, or as simple as scrolling up, I can totally move to whatever I want. And, and it can cancel a person or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it makes separation between you and other potentially real people on the other side of this screen. But it reinforces the idea of immediate gratification. It reinforces the idea that you are the center of the universe and that relationships should be easy because there's no actual person, right? Um, think about how it changes our relationships. Like the fact, even with this, you know, if this were my phone talking to you right here, just the very fact that it's sitting right there actually reinforces the idea that you're important to me, but if something else notifies me or buzzes, like you're not that important to me. Right. I'm going to take this. And much more if I came to you. Do you really feel that way, Justin? No, but it's teaching <laughs> us this. That's what's so crazy is it's, this is like part of the design. Or, right. You yeah, know. you're exactly right. And I think part of what is so disturbing about that is that it, it warps our value system. Yeah. And the people who are in front of us get supplanted by these phones. And actually living our life gets supplanted by virtual experience. There's a great podcast that I recommend. It's not in the least bit Christian, uh, but there's a woman named Barry Weiss who used to be a reporter for the New York Times, uh, who is a partnered lesbian progressive Democrat woman, um, Jewish. But she is a huge believer in the importance of objective journalism. And so she has this remarkable podcast where I think she does a really good job of trying to stay unbiased and ask really good, important questions. But she had one on um, the idea that your attention span is being stolen. And there's a lot of really troubling uh, data out there about how people's attention spans over the past, especially since the introduction of the smartphone, have gone like this that people can't read anymore. It's too, to sit still and read 
requires more self-discipline than people have. And in one of her podcasts, she recounts this example of someone who was a lifelong Elvis crazy fan, and such a crazy fan that they like went to Elvis impersonators, and their whole life revolved around Elvis. Their life dream was to go to Graceland, which if you're really young, Graceland is where Elvis lived. It's a museum in Memphis now. And so they went there, and they were given an iPhone guide to Graceland when they went. And so she recounts the story of these people whose lives revolved around Elvis going into each room of Graceland and being glued to their phone, looking at what the phone depicted about the room that they were actually in without ever looking at the room. That they were so obsessed with what was on the screen that they ignored the reality that was actually around them. Yeah. And studies show too, I mean, most of this you've probably already heard, right? Is that the, the more uh, use you have on your screens, the higher rates of anxiety, depression, all of that is, is so common. Um, and one of the things I read that actually just broke my heart was thinking through why this relationship, uh, if we don't like it, why do we continue in it some ways? Well, it, it says this, uh, or this was Tony Rinke, I guess, in his book. We live under the threat that if we fail to embrace new technologies, will be pushed aside into cultural obsolescence. Left without any key skills, we need to get a job, disconnected from cultural conversations, and separated from our friends. And what's so powerful is each of those sounds, has just enough of like truth to it, that that's what we want. Those are all really good things, and it's all a lie. It's all actually just the very opposite, that as we immerse ourselves in that newest technologies, we're actually cutting off the branch we're sitting on. Yeah. And it's ruining each of those. We're getting um, isolated from our friends. We're actually becoming more disconnected in cultural uh, conversations and our, our work. We're so distracted. We can't actually do good work and therefore we can't actually rest well because when we get off, we fear silence. So yes. we have to have these things all the time. Yeah. So in the last like five minutes, what can we say that all right, if these are some of the ways that technology, specifically a smartphone, is affecting us perhaps subconsciously, what things can we actively do to fight against that? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to, kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, that you have to walk into the room and say, my name is Brian, I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror with your phone and say, my name is Brian, I'm addicted to my phone. You have to acknowledge that there's an issue. Um, the next thing I would say is to set limits on your phone. There are some really good things about phones. Like we couldn't do our theology on tap questions and all of that without QR codes and phones. So I mean, there are great ways to use phones. But the problem is most of us are using that technology in ways that is not life-giving. So I think setting limits um, on the phone and on social media is really important. Um, and then proactively trying to live into things that are life-giving, like in-person time with people. Um, being outside in the creation, looking up, looking at the sky, looking at the stars, looking at plants, flowers, architecture, beauty, all of those things. 
um, that can make a huge, huge difference. And particularly if you're a Christian, worship is something that's really important because as Justin was saying, one of the most insidious things about these phones is that they make us think that we are the center of the universe. And you might remember in the book of Genesis, there's the story of uh, the snake, Satan, tempting Eve and saying, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will be like God. Do you notice what the emblem on this phone is? It's an apple with a bite out of it. That is not an accident. Now, I'm not saying that all phones are <laughs> Satan. So I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we need, to, we need to think a little bit about how much our phone makes us think we're in control of everything. That's right. That's right. And to worship reminds us that God is the one who is in charge and not us. That's right. This is a great quote. Uh, technology is not inherently evil, but it tends to become the platform of choice to express the fantasy or the illusion of human autonomy. Yes. And that, I think, is why they chose the Apple yes, depiction. absolutely. Is we shall be autonomous. And it's the same age-old lie from the beginning that if you actually, you know, the Bible says, what's the path to human flourishing? It's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to follow after him and to love people. It's that simple. Yep. And we've said from the get-go, God's laws are actually going to put me under his thumb and they're actually going to lead to my restriction and so I need to thrust him off and do what I want to do that's right, the line. then I'll be happy then I'll be happy and I'll flourish and I think we're seeing it now at just breakneck pace how much that's not true when you see how miserable we are and that's as I was talking about earlier how do you measure progress with all of these advances are we happier I right well and I remember since I'm old um, in the 70s, uh, when I was in high school, there would be article after article, news story after news story about these technological breakthroughs. And what they would say, you couldn't even imagine the year 2000. That was like Star Trek or something like that. But in the year 2000, everyone will be working three and a half days a week. And there will be so much leisure time that everyone will just be like chilling out and having backyard barbecues all the time because work will be so efficient, so efficient that it's only three and a half days a week. Well, that was before email on phones, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that has not proven to be the case, in case you didn't notice. It, it's exacerbated, it's made yeah. it worse. Yeah. And that's why it's not just scrolling on social media, it's workaholism. Again, you're not. we're not working efficiently, and I'm just as guilty of this, I've, I mean, Preparing for this week brought me to tears so many times because I'm 36, but I'm, you know, well aware that I'm just as, like so implicated in all of this. And I think one of the exciting things is for my generation, your generation, the stakes are really high for how we think and how we steward technology, probably more than any other generation in the history of the world. And the generations that follow are going to be directly. Uh, influenced by how you and I and, and our generation handles and, and approaches mm -hmm. these ma massive issues. But I would say, uh, if you know, what's helpful, right? Yeah. We always go back to this book, The Common Rule. So you, you recognize the kind of um, implicit or covert 
messages that are being taught in kind of our relationship with our phones and stuff, and you have to counter that with what you know to be the truth. That's why it's really important to know what flourishing is to start, that we were made for God and his ways. And this book... And for joy. And for joy, right. Right. Not this, for just mediocre existence. If you haven't read this book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, please, please do. It's by Justin Whitmill Early, and a lot of it has to do direct... It's habits with how do we relate to our phones. Uh, and it's, you know, scripture before phone in the mornings, right? The first thing we often do is grab our phone. Um, or maybe it's, it's something as simple as, like, you said limiting your time with it, but uh, maybe it's actually having a meal with other people without technology once a week yep. or once a day, something like that. Um, my favorite thing is, is once every seven days to take a break from as much technology as you can. That's called mm -hmm. the Sabbath, right? Yep. And the reality is, is that's like putting a huge stake in the ground with our world today that says you can be anything and everything. You can work 100-hour weeks, it's not going to make a difference. Your body, yeah, it might, you know, you might die earlier, but like, this is really living. To say, I'm going to shut my phone off, I can't be everywhere at all times, and I'm going to try to live into God's design, which, hey, I'm limited, I'm, I'm creaturely, I'm right. embodied. It's, and be fully present with the people that you're with. It will change everything yeah. when you do that. Get that book. Yes. And, and try to apply it. Um, any closing thoughts you have before we open it up? Uh, if you are concerned about this and struggling with it, uh, I would really encourage you to talk to one of us yeah. about it. Um, we would love to, we, we will be able to listen. We won't just talk your ear off about our opinions <laughs> about it. But I think it's a real struggle for a lot of people, and it's really important. Yeah. All right, Ethan. How are we doing on questions? We've got some good ones. If everybody would want to go ahead and scan that QR code and check out some questions, we'll give about a minute to vote on your favorites. Maybe ask one you've been sitting on. Check your phone real quick. I don't have my phone with me right now. Did you hear what Brian said? We yep. couldn't do these good things without our phones. That's right. Although I will say my phone is still over at St. Phillips. Mine's in my briefcase. We can look at it later. <laughs> okay, well, I got to Okay. All right, first question. What do you think of the Amish? <laughs> okay, what do we think of the Amish? Um, I, that's a great question. Um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the Amish, actually, uh, but I think that there are many things to admire about the Amish, because what is typical of people who are deep within the Amish understanding of Christianity, and I would say there's a, there's a theology there, but there also is a lifestyle which is uh, affected by the theology. But I think they are very serious about trying to live out what they believe is the truth. And they are doing that in a way that is very costly in terms of other people's opinions of them. Um, I think that their finest hour uh, in recent times was when there was that awful uh, basically serial killer that 
killed a lot of people in an Amish community, and the community came together and very publicly forgave him, um, very much in the same way that the Mother Emanuel people did that. Um, I think the Amish, there, there's a lot to admire there. Um, the perhaps Achilles heel for some of the Amish is a type of legalism about that that is not um, scriptural. Also. Yeah. It's so funny. One of the books I brought, My TechWise Life, written by Andy Crouch, I got a couple of his books. He lives right near Amish country. And the first, actually, the preface, he talks about, you know, first of all, recognizing that our digital age probably isn't going away. So how do we live faithfully? And his first answer is, well, I'm not going to say you have to become Amish, but probably you're going to have to become a lot closer to being Amish than you really would think and maybe would want. But I will say they're a great example. Like, you look at overall happiness in there. Like, those communities know love, know flourishing in many ways. And joy. And joy, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that there's some wisdom that we can take. But again, we kind of laugh it off. Oh, I assume this question comes from, like, that's what you're talking about so ridiculous. It sounds so far on the other end of the spectrum. Well, that's actually just because our tendency is to be way far on the other end. So I think they can be a helpful corrective in many ways to our average, addicted, purposeless, joyous life. Good question. What are biblical ways to break a technology addiction? Uh, That is a great question. So I think one of the biblical ways to break a technology addiction is to look at what scripture commands. And one the Jesus says the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if that is the paradigm and the framework that you're using for your life, it will very quickly make you realize that what you need to focus the majority of your time and energy on is your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. Um, It does not say love your phone with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I think that's part of it, is getting the framework of your life right. The second thing is that scripture tells us that when we are tempted, we are to pray to God uh, about that temptation. We are also to share what we are struggling with with our brothers and sisters in Christ and ask for them to pray for us. So I think those are all parts of that addiction breaking and focusing on the things that scripture calls us to do, worship, fellowship, uh, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, it's admitting, first of all, like what we said, you're confessing your state of reality, that you're in uh, dire straits and to cry out to God is always the first step. But you can't just say, oh man, I'm stuck in this habitual thing, I should just pray about it. Like, you should actually, the, the biblical way to change is by um, putting in place of bad habits, new positive yes. good habits. And that's what we've tried to talk about a little bit, right? And this is where, I mean, going to church is so radical because we believe that it's more than just like uh, getting a message, but you're actually, you, those little implicit liturgies or habits that we form that shape us with our phones, 
there are a million of those when it comes to church. There are a million of those when, when you're, like that's what I was saying earlier, when you actually take a break once a week and stop your work, stop scrolling, get off the, the phone, all that, that's like putting the line in the sand yep. and saying, my allegiance is here. And by doing those habits, that's gonna reshape your heart. It's gonna reshape what you love by doing these things and you will see change. The last thing I'll say is doing it in community. Biblical change always requires other people to, to be in the know, but doing it together right. really, really helps. Accountability, but also um, the encouragement of other people fighting that same fight together. And so sharing with others, being with others as you try to implement some of this is an absolute must. Yeah. This next one says, my distrust for the Bible comes not from its content, but in its composition. Early Christians didn't agree on which books should be canon, and many still don't. Can you respond to that? Um, I would profoundly disagree respectfully uh, with that. Uh, I think that there was widespread agreement in the early church about the canon. Uh, it is, if you, if you really study it and read a lot of the academic books, particularly the ones that are informed by more recent uh, discoveries about manuscripts and all of those kinds of things, uh, they come down resoundingly in favor of the New Testament canon. All of these other uh, pseudepigrapha, um, it's a big fancy word for false gospels basically, um, things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, uh, the Gospel of Peter, all of those kinds of things, they're basic criteria that the canon had to meet. The canon is just what's included in the Bible. And uh, part of it was that these writings needed to be written down in written form on a manuscript within the lifetime of eyewitnesses who were part of Jesus's ministry or were aware of it. Because if you have that as one of your criteria, uh, anything that is off base, people will be able to challenge. Things that are written 200 years later, or even 100 years later, um, than the eyewitnesses, uh, none of those made it into the canon. Um, if I, I would love to give uh, a book to whoever asked that question. Uh, there is a great book called Can We Trust the Gospels? that's written by Peter Williams, who is one of the world experts on New Testament Greek. Uh, he is a genius. He is a professor at Cambridge. Uh, and he applies all sorts of analysis to the Gospels and comes very strongly to the conclusion that they are trustworthy. Yeah. What would you say is the percentage? If you, I mean, I don't know if you, if you had to, I know you have to estimate a little bit here, but just in terms of agreement of percentage of the Christian community that actually did agree in the early church. Uh, 95%, yeah. something like that. Pretty high. Yeah, very high. And I think part of the other thing that's so interesting is that more and more because, and, and again, this is something where technology has helped us because we've been able to digitize manuscripts, which really facilitates research. But one, one of the interesting things is that through the letters that have been preserved of the church fathers, that is, the people who were bishops in the church in the generation after Jesus um, at the end of the first century, 
um, looking just at their letters where they're quoting from the New Testament canon at that point, you can reconstruct about 90% of the New Testament from that. And you can't quote from something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Yep, what he said. <clears throat> How should Christians stand up for teachers with hate groups like Moms for Liberty on the Rise, which are trying to rewrite our country's true history? Uh, I think that there are a lot of different viewpoints about Moms for Liberty. Um, I would be very uncomfortable characterizing Moms for Liberty as a hate group. Um, I think that there's a diversity within Moms for Liberty where there may be people on one extreme or another extreme. Uh, but I think that the, the understanding of what constitutes uh, American history is uh, something that is an important topic of discussion uh, and that there is uh, a need for people to have less polarized conversations uh, about that because I think that, uh, well, I won't go into all of my personal opinions about that, but I think we have to be very careful about characterizing anyone as a hate group uh, because classifying, writing off a whole group of people, that is prejudice. Uh, we are commanded by scripture to deal with people as individuals, not as groups. And so to make assumptions about um, everybody that's part of the group, whether it's the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or Moms for Liberty or whatever it might be, I think we just have to be very careful about that. I'd say this is one of the ways, I alluded to it earlier, like the, the technology that's out there um, only reinforces that we say uh, harsher things come to quicker conclusions rather than actually doing the hard work of talking to somebody face to face where if you're face to face, your chances of actually saying something lambastic or over the top are much smaller than if you're on the side, you know, it doesn't take much of a spine to do that behind a keyboard, right? And so I think going, going both ways, both toward the extreme yes, right absolutely. and the yep. extreme left, one of the things that we learned from, I think, um, we need to learn from the technology that we're in, from the Christian faith, is that actually being able to articulate the opposing viewpoint in a way that they would agree as charitably as you can is always the best thing. That, that if you were in a conversation face to face, they would actually say, yeah, that's my position. Yes. And then engaging ideas as opposed to um, ad hominem sort of attacking you as a yes. person. I think it's gonna be really foundational for if we're gonna survive. I mean, this is, look at what technology has done. I don't think it's any accident that our discourse today in 2023 is the way it is because of the rise of technology. Right, and the Social Dilemma documentary will really explain in detail about that, but I would again commend to you Barry Weiss, honestly, um, because I think she does such a good job of being someone with a progressive point of view, but being uh, very measured and wanting to understand the actual evidence and the facts about every situation. These are great questions, by the way. How has social media and the connectedness offered by the internet helped and or harmed the spread of the gospel? Mm -hmm. uh, that is a great question. So uh, it has helped 
in some really remarkable ways because it allows for things like worship services and Bible studies and podcasts to be received by people who would otherwise never have access um, to things like that. So like one of the things that is remarkable to me is one of our C.S. Lewis class podcast from St. Philip's is being used in an underground women's Bible study in Saudi Arabia um, by a woman who found it on the internet. And uh, that could never have happened without some of these platforms that are out there. But the flip side of it is that social media very quickly is designed to drive you to one extreme or another. And that's because of the way the algorithms in social media are constructed, that it feeds you more and more of what it thinks you're going to like. And so that has created a polarization and a dehumanizing and a creation of this image of those people are bad over there, whether it's the people on the right or the people on the left, that is profoundly contrary to the gospel where Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, yeah this is a great question that gets at the pros and cons of what what you're using it for and what motivation right, plays such a role in it. Uh, I think you did a great job explaining the pros of it and I would add you know, the reality, I, I think in general, not just social media, but we're at a digital point in history where I think we were not created to have this amount of information flooded yes. at us 24-7. And so, by and large, people who have a smartphone are hearing all, you, you know, what makes news? Usually bad stuff, right? Like, terrible things. And so, unfortunately, I do think the spread of the gospel has been harmed by just the fact that the worst things in the church everywhere, all the time, are being, you know, blown out there forever. And I, it's not that they didn't exist before. Sadly, uh, there's been a lot of terrible things in the name of Christ that's been done in the church. But I do think that we're more aware of that now, and that definitely, um, I think, puts a bad, uh, bad image of what the overall uh, church is meant to be. And I do think it, it has caused people to speak into things that really they shouldn't speak into, right? I mean, like, if you think of what you knew 100 years ago and what you would actually speak or write about, right. now, I mean, anybody with thumbs and a... Is an expert. Uh, ...is now saying yes. their thoughts, and it doesn't help. Yeah. yeah. How do I choose between a career path that I only moderately enjoy but pays well and one that won't pay much, but would bring me a lot of joy. Do the uh, second one. <laughs> next. Yes, next question. <laughs> um, that, I think, is a real struggle for a lot of people. And the reason I think that it is a struggle is that in most schools that people go to these days, what you are told all through your schooling is that the purpose of your schooling is to train you to get the job where you can make the most money. And the reason for that is that if you get the job where you make the most money, then you will be happy. But the problem with that is it is a lie. And the older you get and the more that you have friends that are older, the more you will realize how much of a lie that is. And so I think it is 
very important to get off of that uh, trajectory that is just sending you in the direction of making more money. Um, if, if it is, I'm, I'm, I'll give one little caveat there. I don't think it's necessary absolutely that your job should give you joy. Part of the problem that many of us have is that we look to our job to give us meaning and purpose and joy, and that is supposed to be in our relationship with God. But if your job prevents you and is so demanding that you're unable to have a life outside of it, um, and it just gives you a lot of money, that is hugely problematic. I'm so glad you said that. That was exactly what I was thinking with, you know. Um, Do you mean you and I have the same thought about something? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You think we were friends or something? Probably. So, no, I think that looking to your job to give you something that it wasn't meant to do is a huge problem that we have. But also, I will say from experience, like when you find a job that is something where there's a great work environment, you enjoy doing it, you feel fulfilled in that, those are not bad things by right. any means, but right. like um, it is rare sometimes to find that in my own experience. And so, <clears throat> you can always adjust your standard of living. That's, if I was to say, uh, what's the most easily changeable thing? It's not, fi finding a job like that is not nearly as easy as living somewhere else, adjusting your standard of life to be able to suit that. Uh, I would say you've got nine times out of 10, that's gonna be easier to do. Yes. All right, I think if that's- If you're struggling with that, yeah. we'd love to talk with you. Yeah. Um, this is your last time for like a month. Brian's about to go on vacation for the month of August, so this is his last theology on tap till he joins us back. I know. Should we even meet while you're not yeah. here? I mean, no. um, I'm actually so bummed that I'm going to have to miss two theology on taps. But, but you're going to come back. And but I will be back, and I'll be so ready to talk about so much. We've already planned what that one's going to be. It's going to be doozy. Yes. We're so excited it's for that. So one. exciting. But in the meantime, we might even wear special t-shirts. <laughs> Maybe. Um, <laughs> I just pictured that. Um, so why? Well, Thank you for coming tonight, and we will be back in two weeks. We'll have special guests the next two times joining me, and um, we'll be around. Feel free to hang out. Thank you so much to Clark and Henry's for having us, as always, and uh, thank you for coming out tonight.